We're not comfortable with feeling those emotions, feeling helpless, feeling angry Mm. or sad, and we seek a solution. And you can immediately alleviate those feelings by giving some money. And then it's out of your mind. I did something. I'm Lee Matthews, and you're listening to The Good Problem Podcast, a weekly series unpacking the sticky art of doing good. This podcast has now been running for five seasons, and it's been quite a ride. For the final episode of season five, we've decided to flip the format, and I'm going to be interviewed by my wonderful friend and colleague, Mel Harwin. Mel has been working in the international aid, development and social impact sector for over 15 years globally and has an equally as curious brain as me. I'm so happy to have her here today. Welcome to the Good Problem Podcast, Mel. So we're doing something a little bit different today uh, for the final episode of season five. You're going to interview me. I am. So first off, I want to ask you the question you ask all your guests but with a little addition to it. That is, what does the idea of doing good mean to you personally? And to follow that up, how or who has shaped the evolution of this for you over the seasons of this podcast? Wow. Okay. In the beginning, it was quite a naive, simplistic idea of that if you did something good, it must be good, no matter what the outcome was, just the act was good. But through my own career and through making a lot of mistakes myself, I think I started to want to interrogate that a little bit further and not make those mistakes, despite seeing them made over and over again by, you know, organizations and agencies of all different sizes repeatedly. So I think now doing good I think is very subjective to the individual, but for me, it means doing everything possible to make sure that what I'm doing is not harming other people. And if it is that I'm aware of it and I'm, I'm sure that the impacts of that are not outweighing the impact of what I'm doing. I think it's been really interesting to hear how and if people think that what they do is good. So some people will talk about that they don't see what they do as something good. It's just something that they do. Right. Whereas others genuinely see it as a calling or something that they've actively chosen to have a career in the doing good space. Yeah. And often, you know, when I talk to people who have kind of started out like that, they've come full circle and and started to question that in themselves. Mm. And I think the biggest thing that I've learned is that, having critical thinking around what you do is so, so important. And those are the people that are actually actively wanting to make change in in how they do good and are considering their impacts on others rather than kind of blindly just going into it. Yeah. So I think that's probably the biggest theme that comes through. Critically being good, doing good in a critical way. Yeah, thinking critically Mm. about your own actions and not just doing it because or not just maintaining the status quo around how we do good, but actually kind of going, how can I do better at this? And what are the harms that I might be causing rather than just kind of sticking your head in the sand and thinking that you're not causing harm or that it doesn't matter because what you're doing is good. Yeah. So as many of your listeners would probably know, but some may not, 
pretty early on in your early 20s when most people are having hedonistic hobbies. You actually started your own NGO or started an NGO in Cambodia and both of us have worked in the international development sector for almost two decades and we have got to spaces where we look back on things and cringe or reflect on what was behind that and I wanted to ask you why? Why did you do that? Why did you, in your early 20s, start an organisation in Cambodia? That's a really good question and I often ask myself that question. Simply an idealistic belief that I could actually make a change in people's lives and I think I I kind of I went to Cambodia to volunteer and something felt very off or wrong about the volunteering process. Yeah. I, I was working in a school teaching English and I had absolutely no English teaching qualifications and felt like such an imposter. Mm-hmm. Like I should not have been there. We shouldn't. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely should not have been yeah. there. But at that age, I mm. just, that's what you did. Mm. You know, I remember before I got to Cambodia, I was in Vietnam and I was traveling through Hoi An and I was staying in some sort of backpacker hostel place and there was a sign on the wall for an orphanage for children with disabilities and there was a backpacker traveler sitting next to me and I pointed at the sign and I said, what's that? And he was like, oh, you haven't been to Hoi An if you haven't done that. Oh, my God. And I was like, what do you mean do that? And he was like, we have to go and volunteer at the orphanage for a day. And I was like, oh, do you? Okay. So off I went to volunteer Mm. at the orphanage for a day and, like, I felt so confronted by what I saw there. There were children with really severe disabilities, really low levels of care. It was really confronting. Mm. And I had this overwhelming feeling that I shouldn't be there and that this was heartbreaking and horrible, but I still shouldn't be there. I wasn't the one that should be cleaning or feeding these children Mm. for a day. Mm. But I didn't have the right words or framework to understand why I felt like that. So I continued on with my volunteering journey and, and that's where I ended up doing the teaching in Cambodia and I didn't do it for very long because it just felt so wrong. Mm. But I persisted, went to another orphanage. <laughs> Again, was kind of just like, what am I doing here? But it was so normalised at that time. Like yeah. everybody was doing it mm. and they were popping up everywhere. Mm. Like orphanages would just pop up mm. and you'd kind of go, where did these kids come from? But you weren't really deeply interrogating it. And I think... I started doing other bits and pieces, so volunteering at a local hospital, lots of volunteering. And I think for the first time in my life I felt interested, like truly interested in something Mm. and truly like I wanted to help but naively thinking that I could or that I had the skills to and I, I... kind of organically happened setting up an organization. My friend Kari was also there. She's from Norway and we talked about doing something. We'd been doing kind of small little projects in the town with the hospital. And I just, I guess I just thought I can go and raise money. I'm, I'm privileged. Mm. I've got this network got at contacts, home. Yeah. Contact, tax. Yep. And I 
have not a, I remember consciously going, I didn't have a great educational experience. Mm. I didn't grow up wealthy. I mm. didn't, I, I didn't come from money, but what I had was so much more than there. Yeah. So I felt that I could leverage that in some way. So I went home and I just kind of bit the bullet and set up this organization and set up a board. And I had no idea what I was doing. Like mm. absolutely no idea. And it was very different to now. There wasn't much information online. It's really just kind of asking questions and calling around and managed to convince people to get on the board and <laughs> give money and went back to Cambodia and started delivering projects with no, no development background. I decided that I should study development though. So yeah. I started studying <laughs> development. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I just learning by doing, learning by doing. Mm. And I guess that's how I learn mm. mostly anyway, yeah. but I was very, very idealistic and naive and I don't think I'd do it again. I don't, you don't? No. Because I, I guess that was what I was going to ask and looking back and at some of the impacts, I'm sure, you know, there was incredible impacts for people and, you know, when you're providing a service that doesn't exist and you're able to raise money and, you know, that's resources. I think that I made a lot of mistakes. I don't think In I... the way you did it or what you were doing? Both. Okay. Both. I don't yep. think I... I don't think I or the organisation ever harmed anybody yeah. in a very tangible way. Yeah. But I do think that we could have done better mm. with the money that we raised. Okay. We could have done better with the programming that we delivered. We could have, you know, made better choices, mm. listened more. Yeah, we could have not hosted foreign volunteers. Mm. We could, we could. There's a lot of things that yeah. we could have not done that would have made it better. And I guess on a personal level, I, I spent those years just in a bit of a kind of state of just trying to manage this huge thing that yeah. I'd created, and it was quite overwhelming, and it was a lot of work, and I burnt out pretty quickly. Mm. And living in Cambodia and living, you've lived in Cambodia. Yeah. You know what it's like yeah. to live there. Yeah. Um, and working kind of on frontline human rights work is taxing. Mm. It's really taxing on, on your mental health and on your body. Mm. You also know that. Mm. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. And so thinking about that experience and then that started off really your career, career in international development and you've done different sorts of work and practice in from advocacy work to consulting work and as somebody who has that kind of critical inquiry into the work but also works in the work yeah. does it on the day-to-day -day, but then also is quite interested in looking at it being above it what tensions exist for you in in that space and kind of yeah how I, I just I've, I've wondered a lot around how you're able to do that sort of not kind of be in the space where you're just writing these critical think pieces about it and, you know, but you're actually still genuinely wanting to inform practice in a very practical way. Um, but surely that comes with tensions. And, yeah. And how do you deal with that or do you, you know, is there tensions and what are they? I think that there are definitely tensions. I think it's really helpful and essential to question whether there's even a place for someone like me or you mm or any of us working in international development, yeah. if we're really talking about kind of 
you know, decolonizing yeah. the sector, if yeah. we're talking about um, localization, genuine listening, mm-hmm. is there a place for external foreign consultants to fly into countries and, and do work that local people are perfectly qualified, in fact, more qualified to do? To doing, yeah. I think it would be really naive to not ask those questions. I've wavered in that over time, particularly over the past two years, it's become more prevalent with COVID and not being able to travel. And it's been very interesting watching the sector evolve and adapt and localization, which used to be this kind of abstract concept that lived in log frames yep. that, that kind of rolled over from log frame to log frame mm. actually happened yeah. in a lot of places. And did it happen to the extent that People might have imagined a perfect world. Mm. Maybe not, mm. but maybe it was better. Yeah. And there's a bit of a reckoning in the sector itself and we, we should all be asking ourselves whether we belong here. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a tension in working in the development sector as a whole, and we've talked about this on the podcast with a few different guests, but the international development aid humanitarian sector mm. is a colonial construct. Yeah. It exists and operates with colonial systems and we are self-perpetuating our roles within yeah. that yeah. by existing, yeah. by programming, by doing all of these things. Yeah. So, yes, there are tensions. I think rather than try to actively solve them, for me, it's about sitting with them and exploring them like through this podcast, mm. talking about them, acknowledging them. I think you just touched on something around sitting with it and um, I was reflecting on what you were sharing earlier about when you're in Cambodia and you're seeing these things around you and, you know, if you've got any kind of radar to a just social justice issue or, you know, people living in marginalised kind of circumstances, that's really uncomfortable and you you sense it and you sit with it and you you know walk in you know as we did when we were living there you're kind of confronted with it every day and you're going home and you're having a warm shower and going to bed and and so what do you do with those uncomfortable feelings and we've actually had a conversation about this of of sometimes these (laughs) altruistic or these behaviors we do actually are like an addiction because they can feel good to do good because I don't feel comfortable with this situation. So I'm scrolling my Instagram and there's something come up about Afghanistan and quickly somebody else has offered a solution to me, which is to donate to this organisation or, you know, get get involved in sharing something. And that made me quickly move from a really uncomfortable feeling to quickly feeling like I've done something and that feels good. Do you have thoughts around that? And for you, have you, like when you've said, I had, I'm sitting in that tension now, how do you sit in it? And is that being part of your own work for, in yourself? This is a really good point to raise because an entire industry has grown up around mm. the need for us to alleviate our discomfort yeah. with the horrible things that we're seeing and hearing in the world. Mm. And we're not comfortable with sitting the, with that. We're not comfortable with feeling those emotions, feeling helpless, feeling angry Mm. or sad, and we seek a solution. And you can immediately alleviate those feelings by giving some money. And then it's out of your mind. I did something. And for a lot of people, that that is it. That is how they feel like a good person in some ways. Yeah. 
And I think it's incredibly problematic because there's no interrogation of the validity of the intervention Mm. that you're funding. Mm. You know, most people aren't going to understand the complexities of, you know, ethnic tensions in Afghanistan. Yeah. And they just want to help Afghani people Mm. because they're seeing things on the news or on Mm. social media. And to understand what you're giving to and how that is going to impact those people or those places, I think is a responsibility of an individual that's that's giving money. And that's why we actually see so much bad practice. And that's why we see so, so many failed projects because people aren't asking enough questions. Yeah. They just want to alleviate the feeling of helplessness or sadness or anger. Yeah. And it's ripe for corruption and bad practice. Yeah. And that's that's an area that I think needs a lot more attention. And I always advocate for don't give unless you know. Mm. Like actually spend some time, choose an issue that means something mm. to you personally. Go and find out about the all the different organisations that are working in that space. What's their approach? What's good about it? What's bad about it? What are the criticisms? Mm. Like if you're genuinely going to give money to something, you should fully understand what it's going to achieve and you should be placing the same level of scrutiny or critical thinking on that as you are your car purchase yeah. or your your super choices yeah. or things like In that. In fact, more when it yeah. comes to other people's lives absolutely it is and it's literally other people's lives and we have seen so much harmful practice Mm. by big organizations by the un but also by tiny little organizations like the one i set up that actually have no idea what they're doing Mm. and yeah I, i think the responsibility ultimately falls on the individual giving to do the work yeah Yeah, that kind of leads me to another question around, it's kind of misquoted, but Maya Angelou, there's a quote that says, I did the best until I knew better and when I knew better I do but did better or, you know know what I'm saying, no better do better basically. And I think a lot about that in the sense of like my growing up, I guess, in this space over the last two decades has been a lot of learning and unlearning we're really unlearning and relearning now as I'm getting older I'm actually saying I have to learn with intent like rather than stumble my way into knowing better it's actually about seeking to know better yeah and here's a podcast you have like (laughs) that is asking these questions and and obviously around you wanting to look at it critically and and unpack it so I guess do you have more practical or yeah ways that you go about for yourself, knowing better, steps you take, whether it's with consulting work you're doing with an organisation around something or something yourself as you're developing it, the key steps you do or things that you kind of unpack. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you have to break that down to like someone like me that works in the sector versus average member of the public who yeah. just wants to help. Mm. And I think having the mind that I do, like I'm, I'm curious, mm. I want to know about all the things all the time. <laughs> and so I am going to go out and research yeah. all the things that I described. I'm going to undertake that process mm. of understanding oh, 
why like why why are people who's like i'll google criticisms of so i i want to understand what the tensions and the problems are but not everyone has time or energy or interest in doing that and that's where i say well don't do it like it's it's could be more harmful to do it but stepwise i'm someone that will go and methodically seek out the information that i need love a bit of research yeah but you know that's my job I, I know how to do it. I know how to find the information. And I think this, going back to this idea of this industry that's mm. grown up around doing good, it exists to facilitate it for people who don't have time, interest, energy or skills to do it. Right. It's just literally click a button, click a, yeah. go to the supermarket mm. and round up your mm. money and the supermarket will donate it. But actually they get a tax write-off for that. There's not right. a lot of thought going into this. It's just been made so easy for us. And that I think is attention in itself because a lot of money flows to charities from these simple mechanisms. Right. But at the same time, who's monitoring that? Yeah. And who's, who's monitoring the effectiveness of those? What happens with that money down the track? Yeah. How is it any different to any other supply chain? It's not. Yeah. It's not. But we... And when I say we, I mean the general public. Yeah. <laughs> we accept it because it's inherently labelled as good. Yeah. Like, it, it, and that's a problem in itself. We yeah. think that because something is a charity or a social enterprise, yeah. it must be good. Yeah. That gets me to a, this moment that I have, and I'm sure you've had it, um, I'm sure you have it, where, you know, you're at like a school event or a party and you're meeting someone for the first time and they'll ask you what you do for a job. Yeah. And there's that moment where you, you know, you're like how how do I explain this for starters? How do you explain what you do? But then also the the reaction people have. Yeah. Which is, oh, that must be so rewarding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, or, you know, like it, it's just it there's this moment where your job suddenly is set apart from everybody else in that circle who's talking about, you know, what their career is. Um, and I guess then we're left to be the good person in the room. Yeah. You know, people start I, like I, to the point where people have stopped sharing stories around me because, oh, Mel wouldn't want it. Like, <laughs> my, my precious ears. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I, I just kind of there is this pedestal that yeah. exists in the charity, the cha- this sector, yeah. whether it's international development or charity or just any kind of these social sectors, social justice spaces. And where does that come from? Like what is that? Uh, I think you'd have to kind of deep dive into religion. Um, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Done a bit, but um, um, yeah. Yeah. You, you do think it's about a values, a kind of a morality sits behind it. Right? Values and morality yeah. and the way we position people historically who Mm. have helped others yeah um and I think that's kind of carried over into the modern world and and now there's a full industry because there are so many people and places in Mm. need of support and Mm. help I mean our world is pretty messy um but I think you know what you're touching on is this idea of the status that comes with with working in this space yeah and it's one thing to be aware of it, like the, what you just described, of mm. kind of going, oh, hang on, your precious ears can't hear bad things because <laughs> yeah. you work in the, do- yeah. the doing good no space. Idea. <laughs> but but it's, it's also like you can be aware of that, but there are other people whose 
and you and I have talked about this offline as well, like whose entire identities Mm. are caught up in their work, their work Mm. and their role as a good person. Mm. And I experienced some of that myself early on. um, And it was like in hindsight, it was directly connected to me winning awards yeah. for the work that I did. Yeah. So all of a sudden I was put on a pedestal. Mm. Um, and, you know, I cringe at some of the language mm. in the blurbs of mm. those awards and, mm. and the things that I've said because it's literally placing this person who was far too young, far too unskilled, mm. far too naive on a pedestal as a, like, hero for, oh, you know, look at her in her early 20s. She's She's given up her life to go and work for the poor children of Cambodia. (laughs) Yeah. And that is so harmful, that narrative. Yeah. Because it encourages people to do it. So we just see this cycle of like, you know, the local newspaper profiling someone like me Mm. who's gone and Mm. given up their 20s. And and then you've got these young teenagers who are like, I want to go and do that. Mm. I'm going to go and do that. So it's happening over and over. But then- as that person, particularly if you're young, mm. um, and I've got a number of colleagues and friends who have experienced this as well, but if you're young, it becomes you. You yeah. you integrate mm. that putting yourself on a pedestal. Maybe that's not the right word, but it becomes who you are. You are Lee who founded the charity in yeah. Cambodia. Yeah. And to unpick that... <laughs> It took years. I didn't know who I was without that because it had been my whole life and in a really formative time. And so there are a lot of people, I mean, we we call it founder syndrome, I guess. Like people just get stuck in this identity and the status that comes with it and they don't know how to extricate themselves from it. And just to kind of segue into orphanages because I've seen this a, a lot, orphanage founders Mm. who have this like identity as so-and-so the orphanage founder and then they hear this information that says no orphanages are harmful institutionalizing children is harmful yeah and they can't bear to change it because they will lose everything they will lose it's not that they'll lose their orphanage Mm. or their income they'll lose their entire self-identity and it's far too confronting to yeah. do that. And I have lived through a similar experience, I guess, growing up in church and mission that mission trips and have seen people on that, you know, having that intent or that desire to do social justice, but the only space where you could do it was this offering to go on a trip somewhere and, and you know, do similar things like visiting orphanages and as people unpack that a little more, that I've seen it kind of go in a couple of directions and, and one is to cling to it because to to stop doing that would mean really interrogating an entire be- belief yeah. system around it, you know, and a lot around that power and values and morality and all that stuff. Or other people have kind of completely lost their faith and kind of pursued sort of gone. And then there's sort of this middle space, which is people that are able to sit with the tension and kind of li- like, you know, understand that there's a, evolution happening yeah and kind of more of a soft exit out but there is the fear of like for me personally giving up not give yeah but having to kind of come to terms with my job not making me a very good p- 
person yeah. in some ways because it was taking the parts of me that I wanted to reserve for my children or yeah. um, people around me. And I used to say if I don't have a sense of humour, the day I don't, you know, crack a joke or can't have my sense of humour, I'm out. Yeah. But I think to leave was actually a really scary thing because but who am I aside from this? And I guess that comes to like what's the difference between doing good things and being a good person? That's a question that I've asked a lot of guests as well is like do, do you see doing good as part of your obligation as a human yeah. just to live a good life? Yeah. And that's, you know, the the central question of philosophy, mm. right? Mm. Um, or is doing good a, an act that you do that you kind of silo off into work yeah. or religion yeah. or, you know, these different parts of your life where, here is where I focus all my good energy and I might live a good life or I might not, mm. but is it is it something that we do as a just as a being? Yeah. Or is it separate? I think for me the obvious answer is it's it's all around. It's mm. it's that we're good to ourselves, we're good to our partners, we're good to our children, we're good to our community, we're, yeah. we're good to everyone around us and that may or may not manifest through the work that we do. Yeah. But you can be good in a job, you can do good in a job that's not in the doing good space. Yeah. Yeah. Like I guess for me I go, is there even a doing good space? Like as we get more information and we're becoming more educated on um, the systems that we subscribe to every day whether intentionally or not that we're born into like what we talk about colonial systems and there's these opportunities everywhere rather than pursue a career or sacrifice all this this other stuff to go and start a job in Cambodia. Yeah I mean that kind of goes back to um one of my I don't want to say favorite because he's he's not. He's been on this podcast actually, yeah. Peter Singer. I agree with a lot of his work, but some of it I don't. But he does talk about you don't have to go and do this. You don't have to go and work in the doing good space to do good. He provides an example of a really, really intelligent person who goes through an Ivy League kind of, you know, university or, and goes and gets a job as a you know, venture capitalist or stockbroker or something and goes and earns millions and millions of dollars and decides to give X percentage of it per year. Mm. Does that make that person any less of a good person than the person who goes and gives their whole life up and yeah. earns not very much money because we all know you don't earn much money in this space? No. So is one person better than the other yeah. because of the choice that they made? Does it make sense for... Who's raising the informed child? Yeah, I think it's more the everyday than it is the one day or the one these one actions. Yeah, I mean, go back to that example. What if this this venture capitalist guy has made all, his, all of his money off fossil fuels? Yeah. Does how the money is made matter? Yeah. yeah. As long as the money is going yeah. and funding ending polio or mosquito nets mm. or like... You know, I think they're really important things to think about when we're thinking about whether we're a good person all around or whether we do good in certain spaces. Yeah. And have you explored, you know, in some of your research around these, the ethics space, what purpose does it serve in our societies and communities to have these assigned roles 
as the do-gooders or the problem solvers, like the fixers or the, mm-hmm. the empaths. I don't know, every kind of there's a lots of different terms we use, but there's advocates and activists and I would imagine that it's existed over time. Yeah. I mean, there's there's some research into altruism mm-hmm. and kind of why. Like, why do we do good? Yeah. Which is the central question here and of this podcast as well. Like, why are we doing this? And as humans versus, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I can't remember who the researcher was, but he talks about the biological imperative to Mm. do good. Mm. And it really came out of tribes and and needing to survive basically and realising that if you helped them, they were like reciprocal altruism. Mm. So you help them and they'll help you at another time. Yeah. You give them food when they're hungry, they'll give you food or maybe they'll protect you from the other tribe that's that's going to fight you and kill you. Yeah. So it was like a survival yeah, it's a survival, survival mechanism mm. and I think it's certainly as, as society evolved, um, it the practice of altruism evolved and and became, you know, eventually what we know it to be today, which is really messy if you compare it to what it was, yeah. which was really that reciprocal survival kind of mechanism. Right. Um, I mean, there's some interesting research around whether we genuinely, like is it possible to be genuinely altruistic? Like put it on a spectrum, mm. altruism, mm. 100% altruism here mm. and ego over here and like is anyone truly altruistic or selfless? Are we not all getting something out of the mm. good that we do? Yeah. Is that a problem? Obviously there's something inside intrinsic to humans that motivates us. I don't think it's a problem. I think the problem is that we don't acknowledge it. Yeah. That's the problem. I think being able to acknowledge that we do get something out of it and not pretending that we don't and not being positioned and allowing ourselves to be positioned Mm. as just good people. Yeah. Like I'm not better than someone else because Mm. I work in this space. Maybe I'm a really shit person in other parts of my life, but this is just my career. Yeah. Maybe I don't do the right thing. Maybe yeah. I don't recycle. You know, like maybe I'm not good. Can we yeah. all can we all be all good in all the different parts of our lives? That might be completely exhausting. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. I, I think we need to be less hard on ourselves as yeah. well. But I think going back to that original question, the problem is not that. The problem is that we don't acknowledge what we get out of it and we get a lot. Yeah. We get a lot and going back to another conversation we've had, there's a privilege attached to doing good. Like, and I mean, similar, you did talk about this a little bit at the beginning and your experience and you had these contacts, you could fundraise, you could, you know, you sort of had a privilege that you could bring to the table, which was your networks and your growing up in one of the richest countries on earth and having. Yeah. Um, so I guess I think about sometimes like, in terms of, okay, so another doing good space is sort of environmental, you know, awareness and behaviours and bringing those into lives and buying better things and, and walking around a local Harris farm, you know, you can get the nice packaged things that are good for the environment and made well and all that sort of stuff. But it's like $10 to yeah. buy this juice. And then I go and make that choice to buy the expensive thing and make that right choice. 
But that's kind of a privilege to even be in a position where I have choice. Yeah. And I can make a good choice. Yeah. And I can walk away going, I made a good choice today. <laughs> I did a good thing good. with my money, you know, and, and so there's such a privilege to it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's expensive to eat well. To be good. Yeah. <laughs> it's expensive to get organic ve- fruit and vegetables yeah. over McDonald's. Yeah. We know that it costs more to eat well than it does to eat badly and that's yeah. why we have massive obesity and public yeah. health crises. Yeah. I mean, it's a privilege for us to be sitting here having a conversation about the privilege of good. Yeah. Like it's It's two white white women. Yeah, two white women sitting here Mm. in Australia Mm. having this conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it's a privilege to like just this podcast itself. It's very introspective, you know. It's it's essentially I sometimes say it's just an exploration of my brain in some ways and the privilege to be able to do that Mm. and find the time Mm. and – we're such a small minority mm. in the world and ironically, you know, all the people that we're supposedly trying to help don't have the time, space, energy, equipment to to do something like this. And I think the luxury of choosing a career mm. is something that we don't acknowledge enough. You know, the fact that you and I can have four or five different careers, you know, our children might have more than that is a privilege Mm. that most people in the world don't have. So, yeah, I I think that's something we need to acknowledge as well. Yeah. And just to like piggyback that in the sense of privilege onto what you've talked quite a bit about on this podcast, which is, you know, decolonisation of the work that we do. And what about the decolonisation of ourselves? You know, we have these privileges but we also end we have to acknowledge them, but then we have to kind of know better, do better and actively. And I, I wondered, well, my question, I guess, to you is how do you actively decolonize yourself? Like what are you doing as your awareness has grown and you're understanding more about, you know, the, the country we've grown up in and things that we were taught that just weren't true? Are there sort of things that you have thought about may impact how you operate in the world? Yeah, definitely. I think my, my go-to is listening, learning, Mm. like understanding. So in order to integrate something into myself, I need to know all the things. And, you know, I do that by speaking to people through the podcast, um, reading, going down deep dives in the internet to understand things. Um, and, And I guess that kind of becomes cobbled together in a value system that that is ever evolving for me. That does involve questioning my role in all the places that I exist, you know, Mm -hmm. like what what is my role in this sector? Do I deserve to be here? Should Mm -hmm. I be here? Mm -hmm. Do I have something useful to offer? Am I taking the place of somebody else that might have more just because of the colour of my skin Mm -hmm. or the privilege that I have or the, the contacts? Or yeah. the networks that I have. Yeah. Um, and I think it's so important to be asking that of yourself all the time. Um, but, you know, asking isn't enough. And I will fully admit that I'm guilty of sometimes just stopping at the asking mm. and not the doing. And often that's because I don't quite know or I don't feel confident in, in my choice. Mm. But, again, not an excuse not to do. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of people get stuck is, 
We're willing to interrogate it and ask ourselves the questions, but the action itself is scary. And if we're not seeing people around us do it, we're less likely to do it. And I guess you always need those few brave people that are step out. Yeah, stepping out and modeling it to you and and showing you what it's like to decolonize yourself. Mm. I found that that I wanted to just disappear more and it actually goes against a lot of my internal kind of beliefs around as a child, you know, kind of the ultimate is, you know, you're gifted in this and go and do that and speak for these people and also the mental piece of being a good person and getting, you know, young person of the year and winning these awards. So you've now got that. You've got to go and speak this you've got to you've got to be the face of this issue and um and that's kind of then entrenched in the psyche of like it actually is like oh I've got to do this I've got to be this person in the world and and then now sort of getting to a place where it's like I don't have to be I was never supposed to be this person in the world there'll be places and spaces where I might have to but the role of my entire identity yeah having to be that person all the time versus actually just disappearing a bit and like letting other people take those spaces up. I found that quite liberating. Definitely would agree with you on that. Winning those awards was, I guess, a, a blessing and a curse, mm. like, I guess, um, a blessing in the sense that it brought funding in for my organisation and it brought awareness to some pretty serious human rights issues that were happening in Cambodia at the time, still happening, but the impact on me and the internal expectation to live up to receiving those awards and to go out and take up space mm. and be a spokesperson and be be that face of things was misplaced. So exter- like the external yeah. expectation was misplaced. I shouldn't have been that person. Mm. Um, and there's something very, very wrong with the fact that we place young white girls and boys up on pedestals mm. because they went and did something that they shouldn't have been doing anyway mm. instead of listening to people who are directly affected. Yeah. So there's something very, very wrong with that. And we're still doing it. Media is responsible. Yeah. Our Australian mateship culture, yeah. whatever, you know, yeah. is very responsible for this yeah. hero-worshipping narrative. But for me to unpick or unpack the identity stuff and the awards and yeah. the taking up space took a long time because I just didn't know who I was if I wasn't that person. Yeah. And I think luckily I had children, two children in close succession not long after that organisation closed down and it allowed me to disappear Yeah, a bit Yeah. Um, and to find myself again. But, you know, honestly I would say it was still a good kind of five years of, of not really knowing mm. what to do or who to be and not feeling like I could live up to that. Like mm. it was like, oh, you did this, but then that organisation closed down. Yeah. And then do you have to go and do something bigger and better to to live up to it? And I kind of, I, I think I went in that direction right. for a little while, yeah. you know, and not to say that what, the work that I've done is not valid, but it's just interesting to reflect on what the why. Yeah. Yeah. And there's almost an element behind your, like that story of 
there's actually an ambition driving it. You know, I think ambition can be a gendered term sometimes, but I think it's a it's a good thing that people have ambition. But when it's in these spaces and it kind of becomes a career ambition versus maybe what you got involved in for the first place. Well, I mean, I think if I, I if I think about my drivers, it's really that social justice stuff. Mm. And I think the the other side of things like the awards or being the face of something or, you know, all of that stuff always felt really uncomfortable for me, but I was always told by mentors and, and people around me, you have to do that. Yeah. You, you need to be the face of that. You need to be the spokesperson because you can, you can, mm. or you need to go and talk to these networks. For awareness raising purposes. Yeah. Or, yeah. And so the discomfort, like the public speak, I, I can do it now very easily, mm. but the discomfort of, right getting up on stage and talking yeah. about this stuff when all I actually wanted to do was hide away behind my computer and do the work. Yeah. I didn't want to ever be that person, but I understood the imperative to do it. Yeah. You know, like I said before, it's incredibly problematic that that expectation Exists. is out there. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm going to go back to a couple of questions that you ask your other guests. What do you think is the greatest social challenge of our time? And I guess also, has it changed for you? I find it interesting to hear what, you know, people, what people say when they come when on. they respond to it. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, the obvious one is climate change. Mm. I mean, and it kind of is the default. Mm. Like if we don't have a planet, none of this exists. Mm. We don't exist. None of this philosophical questioning gets to happen. No. Like we just don't exist. Yeah. So I think that's the ultimate one, but it's also the easy go-to one. Mm. And I think it's sometimes so hard to digest. Yeah. That it paralyzes people. And it's our ve- like it's our very existence. Yeah. And and I think people do forget that mm. because it can it's easy to compartmentalize it. But I think, you know, if we're talking I can't even say this because it is here and now. Like we are in a climate emergency. Mm. It's not no. it's not something that's happening abstractly yeah. in the future. But I think this is probably linked and I can't remember who else said this, but this idea of just like stepping back and listening. Mm. Stop taking up spaces. Mm. Stop ignoring people that might look different or don't speak as loudly. Mm. And actually listen to what they have to say mm. because they're the ones that are affected by by this. So I think it's the it's that we don't listen. Yeah. We just dominate and think that we have the solutions and we don't. No. Yeah. So question off the back of, you know, travels and meeting being different communities and cultures across the world. I'm sure you've done a, like a lot of going to interesting places and doing interesting things. Where's your favourite place on earth? Cambodia. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for lots of reasons because it, I guess it became a second home but also the people, the, the people that I met and the people that I love there mm. are lifelong mm. friends and life-changing friends. I probably can't choose any one place in Cambodia. I think it's a people and it's a sensory kind of thing. Like mm. it sounds weird. It's getting off the plane and getting yeah. to that tuk-tuk. Yeah. yeah. And, the, and the dense air. Yes, yeah. and, and smelling all the smells mm. and yeah. it feeling like home. And, yeah. I, and I think I realised that at one at one 
point when I was going back there mm. after a trip back here and mm. I went, wow, this actually feels more home than home. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not any one place. It's it's people and feelings and yeah. senses. Yeah. Yeah. I It's it's such an amazing kind of moment when you feel more at home in somewhere that's not home. Like it's like, oh, I was made for this, yeah. this climate, these people, you know. Yeah. yeah. So thanks for letting me come on your podcast. <laughs> Thank you for being here and interviewing me. Yeah. Well, I think you're a good person, Lee. <laughs> Likewise. And, uh, yeah, that's all I've got to say. Thank you. Thanks, Mel. <laughs> this podcast is recorded on the lands of the Jajawurrung and Tongrung people in the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners and true sovereigns of the land. Despite the impact of European invasion, we acknowledge their deep understanding and connection to country and rich cultural knowledge. We acknowledge and pay our respects to their elders and elders of Indigenous communities across the world, past and present. Podcast episodes are made possible through the hard work of my amazing team, including audiovisual production by Brianna at Bambi Media and creative production by Olivia Allen. The Good Problem Podcast is a project of Alto. We partner with purpose-driven leaders from the business, non-profit and philanthropic sectors to achieve aligned, ethical and sustainable impact. Find out more at www.altoglobalconsulting.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Alto.